Totally Football Show. Hello. James is away, Caroline is busy, everyone else is in a beer garden, and so in scenes reminiscent of Michael Knighton appointing himself as Carlisle manager, you've got me. This weekend, the bloated Premier League prepares to jettison its waste products. So, what's just gone around the U-Bend? Goodbye, Stoke. And what requires a second flush? Look out, Swansea. And what on earth is that floating in the most peculiar way? Hello, West Brom. When you've got a host with a surname like mine, you can guarantee that we'll be casting our eyes north of the border, but we won't limit our travels to Scotland. We've got news from Spain, from Germany, from Portugal, from Italy. Not from France, though. We wouldn't put you through that. It's all in the Totally Football Show. So, who have we got here sacrificing their bank holidays on the altar of the Totally Football Show? Michael Cox. Hi, Ian. Hello. Where are you going after this? Uh, I'm off to the cricket after this, so nice. off to the Oval, and then I'll spend uh, my evening, as everyone should on this bank holiday, uh, watching the snooker final. All right. Good yeah. bank holiday choices. Daniel Story. Good morning. What, what lies in wait for you? Train back to mm, Loughborough, and then five-a-side football this evening, which is going to be hot and sweaty and horrible. Yeah, that sounds a bit energetic for my taste. Mm. Adam Hurry. Hello. Hi. What have you got planned? I'm going for a picnic in the park. That, I think, wow. Adam wins. Adam Thanks. definitely Nailed it. wins. Now, before we get going, uh, we do want to send our best wishes to Sir Alex and all the Ferguson family. Uh, the former Manchester United manager, of course, underwent emergency surgery on Saturday. I think it knocked us all back when the news broke because it looked so well last weekend. So uh, let's hope we get good news on that front before too long. Now, to the football. Ladies and gentlemen, let's Unfolding drama at the bottom. Stoke are gone. West Brom are still hanging in there. Southampton and Swansea are level and playing each other on Tuesday. And Huddersfield got a point. No one saw that coming. But let's start at West Brom. Uh, a 92nd minute winner from Jake Livermore. Now, I don't know if you were watching Soccer Saturday as, as I was, but everyone on the panel was criticising Darren Moore for his substitutions. And, oh, what are you doing? Oh, I really rated him, but oh, it's not going well. And then he gets it right there in injury time. It's an incredible achievement to even have him in the conversation, isn't it? Yeah, brilliant. And and even if they go down, which does still look likely based upon the mathematics, I think they'll they'll start next season with some confidence and, and some kind of sense of momentum. Um, it looked like West Brom had a really good spell of pressure at the end. And uh, I really like the fact that the goal was so scrappy and such an old school, <laughs> you know, goal mouth scramble. It seems like the kind of goal that you should be scoring in the 92nd minute to keep your hopes alive um, until the final weekend. So, yeah, it's, it's a great story, that. Let's go through what they need. They need Swansea and Southampton to draw on Tuesday. Then they need to win at Crystal Palace, who, of course, are already safe. Then they need Swansea to lose at home to Stoke. Could happen. And then Southampton to be beaten by Manchester City by a margin that will absolutely banjax their goal difference. So there are a lot of, a lot of boxes that need to be ticked here. But Daniel Story, can they pull it off? No, I don't think they can, which is a, a horrible thing to say. But that's that's kind of not the point. You know, people were writing West Brom's obituaries as far back as the beginning of March, um, or some did so when Alan Pardew was appointed. Oof. Um, but it's not about that. It's a, as Michael says, it's about the start of next season. The interesting thing is is whether this run of form might actually persuade a couple of West Brom players who would have wanted to leave the club in the summer, maybe even for other championship clubs, um, it might well persuade them to stay. So on that note, it clearly is important. The weird thing for me is that everyone you speak to or every interview you listen to about 
um, West Brom at the moment, every person without fail says the says the phrase Mr. West Brom about Darren Moore. Um, experience of a situation is not everything, and, and obviously Moore was part of the, the great escape under Brian Robson in 0-4-5, but it seems crazy now, in hindsight, admittedly, that West Brom could look at that coach, who was clearly so popular at the club, and yet consider... Pardew the name the outsider as the best option at that point when they're already slipping towards relegation and and obviously that's what's going to take them down but the, again the, the odd thing is that Moore is not yet guaranteed to get the job on a full-time basis that was never the plan the plan was him to tide it over and then they would appoint a Dean Smith or maybe Mick McCarthy or Lee Johnson at from Bristol City he has to get that job now so for his his, for his career prospects this is everything. Um, and, you know, in, th- in three weeks, he's beaten Rafa Benitez, Jose Mourinho and um, Mauricio Pochettino. So yeah, it's not I'm, a bad start. Adam, uh, after Liverpool were beaten by Chelsea, and more on that in a bit, West Brom are now on the longest unbeaten run in the Premier League. <laughs> three wins and two draws for uh, for, for Darren Moore. Um, he's already won more points than Alan Pardew did in 18 games. He's won as many as Pulis did in 12 uh, is this just because he's not Alan Pardew, or is it because he's really good? Well, um, the discourse over the sort of the last week or so has been yes, you know, you should have been in there earlier. Pardew wasn't doing a very good job, and if, if only they'd had him in a month earlier, they might have had a chance. And that that sentiment seems to be spreading to the West Brom players now. You've, I think it was Alan Neom who said because uttered the same sort of thoughts uh, at the weekend. He said, you know, maybe we could have got our act together a little bit sooner. Um, a wonderful image of of Darren Moore as the, as the goal went in at the Hawthorns and absolute bedlam around him and he was just he was just down on one knee motionless <laughs> this rock this statue of a man emblematic of uh, what? um I mean, as, as a West Brom fan you'd look at that and you would be inspired even if they do go down which they probably will because I think there's there's one too many permutations there as you listed them um but yeah uh, the clamor for him to get the job will be huge unfortunately we kind of seen this scenario before where a manager has a huge impact as a caretaker and then he, they they have to face up to the mundane reality of a season in charge let's have a look at southampton i'm afraid i actually watched this everyone else <laughs> in my life out frolicking in the sunshine and i'm watching this turgid awfulness um southampton should have won shouldn't they coxie yeah, I mean, there was just a, a succession of defensive errors really in the last few minutes. Uh, Yoshida, I think, was very unlucky with his first yellow, but shouldn't have made the challenge for his second. Wesley Hood uh, dived in unnecessarily and conceded a free kick, which brought the pressure. And then Ryan Bertrand made that peculiar clearance by the corner flag and, and handed possession back to Everton. Um, yeah, I think that's a really damaging goal now because it means Southampton probably have to go to Swansea and win, I would think. Um because they're level on points either side of the drop zone. And although they have a better goal difference, they have City at home on the last day, which I still think will be tough. Um, whereas Swansea will be going... Sorry, Swansea are at home to Stoke. So I fancy Swansea to pick up more points than Southampton from those games. Daniel, the important thing here is that Mark Hughes uh, kept his composure and maintained his dignity after the game. <laughs> <laughs> I, do you know what? The, one of the things he said after the game, and I don't, I don't really like criticising referees, but the, the, the snidiest element of what Hughes said was that um, he was asked whether he would comment on uh, referee John Moss's performance, and he said, "Well, I won't do that because he's probably still getting his breath back." Oof. And there is a kind of widespread <laughs> there's a widespread feeling in the game that Moss is perhaps well. The, the, there's an accusation. I think Gary Neville said it that Moss gives free kicks so he can catch his breath back, <laughs> which is an excellent, the the worst or the best form of spot fixing I've ever heard. Um, 
But I, nothing that Moss gave was wrong, really. The free kick was a free kick. They said he played a minute longer of, than he should have done in injury time, but Southampton had a player down for a minute of that injury time anyway. So I get why that Hughes was annoyed because he's per- perennially annoyed with referees, but I don't think he had much of a case. And just on the specifics of that free kick at the end where Hughes was complaining that the linesman didn't flag, well, I believe now that they've got the radio communication, they do flag less because it can kind of create a little bit of awkwardness or confusion if they flag and the referee doesn't give it so I, I'm not sure that in itself counts for much and anymore and as always in these situations there was you know there's at least three degrees of separation from that incident and then the goal going in and then uh, I, I hate to be the one on people on one knee watch but uh, I think it was Wesley Hurt who's, who deflected the ball in and uh, you saw him just down on his haunches as well. And it, it, uh, as the realisation dawned on him that the ball had gone in behind him, I, all, that's all I could look at. I didn't look at anything <laughs> else. I just watched him on the floor going, oh, God. Sammy Kafouris. Yes, <laughs> you didn't, did, didn't hammer the turf. Respect for the turf. Good. Speaking of scenes of huge disappointment, let's talk about Everton um, for a moment. Uh, a lot of people I noticed in the media this weekend were... Um, uh, leaping to Sam Allardyce's defence and asking what exactly is it that Everton fans are demanding. Um, again, I watched that game and I would say, not that. No, They're yeah. just pretty much demanding not that. Absolutely. And Allardyce made two kind of odd claims last week. The first was that he, he with no preparation at all, came out and said that the club had told him he was staying on next season. So that they were looking at players over the summer, looking at transfer targets, looking at pre-season plans, and then clarified and said, yeah, I've just told you. I'm staying on. Every other media report would suggest that's not true. Uh, he then also claimed that he'd captured the hearts and minds of the majority of Everton supporters, which um, when you follow that up with what happened on Saturday tea time, it's just performance art from Allardyce at the moment. He's, he, it's as if he has resigned to his own fate and so he's decided to wind up as many Everton fans as possible and he's doing it pretty well. He said afterwards, it was an anguishing performance to stand and watch the players, um, which is kind of, <laughs> Tortured phraseology, but uh, <laughs> yeah, people in glass houses and all that. Uh, Adam, um, Everton, at the beginning of the season, I think almost everybody who did predictions said Everton 7th. Yes, they're, guilty, guilty. Yeah, they're 8th. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, hey. Are we making a fuss about nothing? Um, I think it says a lot about the, the very, very soft middle of the Premier League. Um, I think we've, we've, we've seen this for a while now. There isn't a great deal of glory as there used to be in finishing ninth and eighth. Uh, not that there was a great deal of glory, but you know, it's not as a consolidating position as it used to be. Um, so eighth is essentially better than all the rubbish below you. And uh, I don't think that's, that's a huge uh, achievement in this season. The thing is about Allardyce, and no doubt he would disagree with this, but... I feel like at this point in his career, he should just specialise himself as a guy who just comes in, fights, fights, and then just leaves quietly in the season. And and when everyone know everyone knowing that's what he's going to do, and that should just be his thing. I think he'd do all right at that, and you, and it's probably some good money in that racket as well. All right. There's something really weird this season about the Premier League in that. Stoke are going to go down possibly bottom of the league and are probably going to keep Paul Lambert. West Brom are probably going to finish 19th and keep Darren Moore. Uh, West Ham are going to finish 15th and look to be keeping David Moyes. And then the teams in 8th and 9th, Everton and Leicester, are the two probably most (laughs) likely to sack their managers this summer. So that's what you say about that, that soft middle because teams like Southampton last year can very quickly fall from there down fast and um, it's it's a perilous place to be sometimes because you don't know what your expectations are for the next season you know there, there seems to be disagreement among the fans the board no one knows where you're supposed to be when you're in mid-table some teams should just accept that they're mid-table teams 
damning stuff. Um, we'll just move on to have a look at Swansea, uh, because I think most people thought with that initial run of form under the new manager, they'd probably be all right. But they've only picked up two points from their last five games. They haven't scored in any of their last three. They've only had 300 shots all season, which Harry Kane generally rattles off in a month. <laughs> they've only scored 27 times. Michael, they're in trouble. They are in trouble. I mean, it's again, it comes down to this game that's almost like a playoff against Southampton on on Tuesday, which I think is effectively the biggest game of the Premier League season. Um, and they have got Stoke on the last day. And that is now looking a very tasty fixture because, of course, Stoke are the only side um, that are definitely gone. So I tend to fancy Swansea to stay up at this point, actually, with two games. It's in their own hands. One game against 17th and one game against 20th. If you can't, if you can't get four points from those, then, well... You well, don't deserve to be in the Premier League, do you? You're not the only person who's confident in Swansea because the manager, Carlos, uh, said, I'm not worried. My team play better at home. The fans can make a big impact and we believe we can do it on Tuesday. It will be a game which will decide things. Daniel, is he right to be confident or is he just mad? His cheery optimism is his thang. So there's no surprise that he's come out as, as confident. And to be honest, ahead of a game like that, you would expect a manager to talk up the team rather than talking them down. But... By all accounts, they were they were woeful on Saturday. They um, they keep Carvajal keeps playing with this three man central defence, which it hasn't actually made them that secure. They've kept one clean sheet in three months in the league, but it's stymieing all their attacking endeavour. And Key and Carroll in the midfield are just a bit meh, a bit soft centre, and they just don't look like they're, they're geared up um, for all Carvajal's constant geeing up of the team it, it, it just feels like that goodwill has run out now um, uh, I, I agree with Michael I think they probably will stay up in the end because I think they've got easier fixtures and they will just about do enough but it is, it's odd and kind of worrying how quickly this has gone south again uh, Adam, Swansea always used to be you know, the team that neutrals like they played mm-hmm. good football mm-hmm. they um, brought managers and players from lower leagues up and through but they don't really seem to stand for anything right now No, I don't, I don't really know what they're squad screams to me you know that none of their players really you know stand out it, it that lack of a striker is is the most worrying thing i mean in a one off game on tuesday night i would back southampton to score more goals it really is as simple as that um sadly Sadly for Carvajal, games aren't decided on cheeriness alone because I think he would probably just about edge Mark Hughes. <laughs> so Mark Hughes will sort of you know, stand through that with his arms crossed uh, for 90 minutes, but I, I suspect Southampton, Southampton should edge it. A quick word on Huddersfield, Michael. Uh, I have to confess, I didn't think they'd have enough. I mean, at no stage of the season have I thought that they'd had enough. Are they going to make it a draw at Manchester City? No one saw that coming. No, they didn't. It was a strange Premier League weekend where uh, none of the top four sides scored a goal which is quite remarkable considering how dominant they are over pretty much everyone else in the league. Um, I mean, Huddersfield, they don't score a lot of goals. They are very well organised. I do think they are occasionally very good at frustrating other teams. Um, And yes, I I think they probably will stay up now. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they got something uh, on the final day against Arsenal, who have this dreadful away record, who've had pretty much their end of season party, it seemed, at the Emirates of the weekend and have nothing riding on that game because they beat Burnley, so they're guaranteed to finish sixth. So I think Huddersfield could well get some more points. And, and yeah, I think they'll stay up. Be an incredible achievement. Uh, when we come back, though, we'll be picking through the bones of Stoke. Listeners, our partnership with Paddy Power helps to keep this podcast free. And speaking of free, when you join Paddy's Rewards Club, every time you place five bets of £10 or more on any sport in a single week, Paddy will give you a free £10 bet the following week. Sign up now at paddypower.com. 
T's and C's apply. Max £10 bonus per person per week. Specific odds required. Exclude shops and cashed out bets. 18 plus only. BeGambleAware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. Right. Stoke against Palace. Another bloody awful game um, that I watched this weekend. There's really no argument for Stoke staying up. They were poor here. They've been poor for, well, they've only won one of the last 14. Deservedly relegated, Michael. Yeah, I mean, you know, you said something about Swansea that I think kind of applies to Stoke in the opposite sense, if you like, because they used to be the complete anti-footballing side that didn't care about playing well and just went long ball and and tackled hard and the rest of it. And the move away from that, you know, initially did give them some stability in Hughes and they did finish in the top half three years in a row. But I don't really see what their squad is about anymore. It's just a loose collection of parts. I think they've got a wonderful player in Shakiri, who I think could move to a top six club next year. I think he's still outstanding. Um, but they've struggled really badly for goals. I mean, they've got a lot of strikers on their books who have been good at some point. You know, Crouch and Juf and mm. Berahino and even Hesse, who don't know what his you know frame of mind is, but he seemed to effectively disappear a couple of months ago. And, and there's nothing about them, really, that, that makes you kind of sad that they're gone now. They really do have a lot of talent there. It's not just Shakiri. They've got uh, Jack Butland, who'll probably be going to the World Cup. 18 million on Vimmer. Uh, 18 million on Berahino, hasn't scored for two years. I mean, there's a lot of talent there. What went wrong? Well, Jack Butland's come out came out on Sunday evening, and he was the player who was most emotional after the final whistle. He was the player who the supporters will have the most sympathy for. Um, there aren't many players who, who will gain their sympathy, but Crouch and... and and Butland are the two uh, and then he came out and, and attacked more strongly than I would ever believe the club's recruitment processes um, the, he attacked the director of recruitment personally he said that the club had bought players that they were had not used and would never look to use and it, it, when you do that it creates that squad that looks like component parts rather than a team um, there are too many players that Stoke signed last summer who who have not just been poor, but just simply haven't played games. Um, Jesse is the obvious example. Each one of the, potentially each one of the relegated three in Stoke, West Brom and Swansea found a player from a European super club in Renato Sanchez, Krajcoviak and, um, and Hesse, who they assumed they would be able to bring in and it would be as easy as that to affiliate them in the team. And it's, it's not worked with any of them, really. Adam, um, 10 years of Stoke in the Premier League. <laughs> I think my favourite Stoke memory, and I'll be offering this question to you all, which is why I'm buying you some time, um, was when Bose Myhill, then playing for Hull, was so scared of giving away a throw-in to Rory Delap uh, that he actually turned around and booted it out for a corner. Um, they, <laughs> they've given us a lot of stories. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's, it's been a, quite an entertaining um, 10 years of Stoke in the Premier League, and they have served quite a useful purpose over those 10 years. But unfortunately, it... I guess they they we no longer have a purpose for Stoke in the Premier League. And when you see when you see a front line of Peter Crouch and Mame Biram Juf, um, that's uh, two goals between them since January. Yeah, those two. yeah. Um, it's I suppose a little and large partnership to an extent, but uh, that is not a strike partnership that we should be seeing anywhere near the top flight. Daniel, any Stoke happy memories? Uh, not many. Okay, Michael. <laughs> well, I was going to go for yours. Yeah, uh, but I'll go for one in the reverse game which was when they were so scared, again, of Rory Delap's throw-ins. Uh, Phil Brown sent out uh, Dean Windus to warm up 
in front of Rory oh, de Laf yeah. as he was winding up his throwing. If there is a man perfect for that part, it is Dean Windass. <laughs> as well, isn't it? I tell you what, though, the, the Premier League are going are gonna to miss a heavyweight booer in, in, in the Stoke crowd. They are top-class <laughs> booers. They are Champions League-level booers. Uh, I think only Everton can really rival them for just booing such you know, insignificant moments in the game. So the Championship has got some serious booing coming to it. <laughs> I will miss the, the stadium. I don't know how many happy memories you guys have. Um, it is so cold because it's basically <laughs> yeah. up on a hill surrounded by very, very little at all. It manages to collect all the wind in Staffordshire, It really it? <laughs> does. There's, there's, there's significant fetch, um, but it's really loud. And, you know, it, it does sort of get you going when they're in full voice. It's just a shame that they haven't been in full voice for so long. Daniel, um, Paul Lambert obviously wants to stick around and rebuild it. Um, is he going to get that chance? Should he get that chance? I think he might get that chance. I don't think he should. Um, to my mind, Stoke made two pretty obvious mistakes. The first was holding on to Hughes for longer than he probably deserved it was going south gradually but significantly for a long time before they sacked him which kind of meant that all the other cliche but all the other firefighters had gone they also then sacked Mark Hughes without having anyone lined up they approached Martin O'Neill they approached Gary Rowett they approached Kike Sanchez Flores and all they all said no so then they were left in a situation where they didn't really have many other options left so they went for Lambert appointing the make-do manager and then watching him go the last 14 games of the season without a win, to my mind, does not a promotion bid make. But Well, it's not all bad news for Stoke fans uh, because next season they can join me every Tuesday on the Totally Football League show. Nice. Do give that a listen. Um, even though this show hasn't been released yet, I can hear Crystal Palace fans screaming in my ears, what about us? So, Adam, we should have a word. Roy Hodgson, he took over um, his reputation in tatters after what happened in Nice. And uh, it doesn't immediately improve because uh, Palace end up seven games without a win, without a goal, and he turns it around. Yeah, uh, it turns out that Hodgson is Pep Guardiola's shout for manager of the season. Um, really? Yeah, that's how much uh, of a good job he thinks he's done. It's not Palace. a bad shout. Um, yeah, they have too many... Go- I don't want to say they're too good to go down, but they have too many good players to have been in that situation. So I'm qu- I, I would be quite excited about them next season, presuming they can keep hold of Zaha. I don't think Zaha should leave um, from his own perspective. I don't, I don't think there's anywhere he could go just now where his career would benefit from it. So um, another season with Palace at full throttle, Hodgson embedded in that job, finally, you know, getting his identity in there. I think that they'll be all right next season. And finally, we might actually have a proper mid-table next season. You know, you know <laughs> teams that, you know, belong there and, and, and flourish there and not just wondering what they're doing with themselves. Michael, Crystal Palace now only 13 points off qualifying for the Europa League. Um, it just goes to show what they could have achieved had they not given everyone a seven-match head start. <laughs> you know, what might have been? What, what could be next season? Yeah, I think they'll be pushing for seventh place. I think, as I said last uh, weekend on this programme, I think they're an excellent side, great defensive organisation. I quite like the system he's almost been forced to use, Hodgson, uh, because Benteke hasn't been scoring. So they're basically playing two wingers up front and four central midfielders, which is a curious kind of system. A little bit like what Portugal did at the last Euros, actually. Um, That's what happens when you... Don't produce a striker. I suppose it's quite um, unnerving for a defence to play against you know, two very, very mobile players who are happy to take the ball wherever they can to find a space. Yeah, definitely. And Benteke, you know, obviously hasn't been scoring, but is a decent plan B. He's yeah. the classic kind of Giroud figure, if you like. Yeah, I'm, I'm just really happy about Palace, to be honest. I'm, on a personal level, I really like going to Selhurst Park because it's a great ground. And, you know, I said this exact same thing back in September when he was appointed and and others weren't so optimistic. But I just think it's a great story of this Croydon boy who played for Palace as a youth, spent 50 years basically travelling the world 
and has returned to like a hero's welcome when he wouldn't have got a hero's welcome anywhere else in the Premier League and has done a great job. I just think it's a great story. I'm really happy for Hodgson. I concur. And uh, again, having lost a place of the atmosphere of the Britannia Stadium, you know, at least we're keeping Selhurst Park. Um, and what are we getting in, in place of it? Uh, because the Football League is all over by the playoffs. Uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers coming up. I'll tell you what, if they were in the Premier League this season, mid-table, Cardiff going up. I've watched a lot of them this season. I don't think they'll struggle next year. I think they'll they'll stay up. Um, but Fulham will have to go through the playoffs. They'll do that with Villa, Middlesbrough and Derby. And we say goodbye to Barnsley, who sacked their manager, Burton and Sunderland. In League One, Wigan and Blackburn go up. Shrewsbury, for that is how you say it. Rotherham, Scunthorpe and Cholton make the playoffs. Oldham, Northampton, MK Dons and Berry all go down. In League Two, Accrington Stanley absolutely stormed it. They're going up with Luton and Wickham. Exeter, Notts County, Lincoln and Coventry in the playoffs. First time they've finished in uh, such a high position since 1970 in any division. And Barnet, despite getting 13 points from their last five games, they join Chesterfield and drop out of the Football League. If you're wondering why we're not talking more about that, it's because we've got a whole show about all of that and that will be released on Tuesday. Right, time for a break. Hello, I'm Ian McIntosh and people often say to me, Ian... How do you sleep at night? Even my wife calls me a tosser. But I tell you, I sleep soundly because I have a Lisa mattress. Yep, I've had my Lisa for about five weeks now. It's super comfy, it's extra supportive and it keeps me cool. Now there's no more tossing and turning when I'm asleep on my Lisa. Try it for yourself and you'll see what I mean. In fact, Lisa are so sure you'll love your new mattress, they'll give you 100 nights to try it out, completely risk-free. Lisa comes in all sizes up to Super King which means there's plenty of room for everyone. Budge up, Jimbo. Mmm. Because you listen to the Totally Football Show, you can get £80 off any mattress in the Lisa range. Just head to lisa.co.uk slash totallyfootball and your discount will be automatically applied at the checkout. So, if you want a mattress that's so comfortable, you'll sleep soundly no matter what you did last summer, it's got to be a Lisa. That's lesa.co.uk slash totallyfootball. Right, back to the Premier League. Uh, Sunday also saw Chelsea beating Liverpool 1-0. It's four wins in a row for Chelsea now. So if Conte is going out, he's going out with a bang and he might just rip Tottenham or Liverpool out of those Champions League places, Michael. Yeah, it was a curious game. I thought Liverpool looked very tired, to be honest. I mean, they looked tired at the end of the Roma game. Didn't make Well, they made one change. They left out Henderson. Um, and it was... It was a strange game because Liverpool weren't pressing like they usually do and it, it looked like Chelsea had set up to kind of guard against the speed of, of Liverpool's front players, which they broadly did, but it was just a bit of a, almost a nothing game really, very hot weather and it seemed like a lot of people just couldn't be asked to run around much. I, I thought Chelsea kind of took advantage of the fact that Liverpool's legs were a little bit heavy. It was a, it was a big match for fans of high-intensity sprinting. Um, <laughs> you saw Angolo Kante covering about two football pitches uh, in one go to come back and tackle back. Eden Hazard, who, you know, my theory about him is he, he's brilliant over 10 yards, but he doesn't have the kind of the staying power over 50, 60 yards. But even then, he was still he was still charging around in the sort of the 80th minute as well. So, um, yeah, Chelsea Chelsea's really kind of stretched their legs and it, it's, it's quite it's refreshing to see Chelsea turn up for a, for a big game against against a big club this season because they haven't had great records so far. Daniel, you look at the league table and you think automatically, well, Tottenham must be in trouble. But Tottenham have got Newcastle and then Leicester, two mm. teams who've basically clocked off. They've got them both at home as well. 
and Liverpool haven't won in three. Is this going to all go horribly wrong? I don't think so. I think Chelsea probably will finish fifth. Um, but I do think it's important f- for next season. Um, this is their longest. I think they've won five matches in a row in all competitions, which is the first time they've done that all season. Um, and this is the just the start of Chelsea's short-term ideal, which is what they do every time, where <laughs> a manager leaves and they play well. Timo Bakayoko was excellent yesterday. I don't think I've seen him play well this season before yesterday. Um, Antonio Rudiger was, I thought, probably the game's mm. best defensive player. Those two new signings who have struggled at times this season were excellent. So it just feels to me that this is quite important for Chelsea because it means they start next season level with everyone else, which rather than, as sometimes happens, three or four yards behind the place, which they, they did at the start of this season. I think the annoying thing for, for Liverpool, I mean, they're still in the driving seat as long as Liverpool beat Brighton on the final day. They'll finish in the top four, which they should do. But it now means that Klopp has to think about Brighton mm. and has to plan for that tactically rather than just spending three weeks looking forward to the challenge of Real Madrid. So I, I think it's more of a pain than anything. Uh, Chelsea, uh, so still with a chance of getting Champions League football for whoever's in charge next season. Um, but they have picked up uh, some trophies uh, this week. Uh, they won the fifth Youth Cup in a row last Monday. I look forward to seeing all of those players in the first team before long. <laughs> and they retained the Women's FA Cup. 45,000 people at Wembley to see Chelsea beat Arsenal 3-1. Goals from Ramona Backman and Fran Kirby. And a fourth trophy for manager Emma Hayes, who was in the dugout eight months pregnant with twins. Uh, Adam, you watch this. Good game? Yeah, it was. It was a fantastic cup final, actually. Uh, yeah, Emma Hayes, who... who who took kind of took a kind of background role for the day she left the kind of ceremonial duties to her assistants all the all the handshaking all the dignitaries and the and all that beforehand but um it was it was a really good cup final as most cup finals needed it, it needed sort of half an hour to get going but then after that the tempo was was brilliant and what decided it was was Chelsea's kind of strong spine um Katie Chapman in midfield who's kind of the leader of of it all towering over everybody else she kind of drove them forward and then up front they had um Frank Kirby, the mini Messi, as she's uh, as she's nicknamed, and uh, she 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 crowned the victory with a, a stunning goal, a really really good goal, a goal she'd been threatening to do all afternoon, cut in from the right and sort of swept it in, and then there were two goals from Ramona Backman as well, two really really good finishes, and uh, yeah, Arsenal just couldn't get near, couldn't lay a paw on Chelsea until till the end. Um, they they scored quite late on to make the game relatively interesting, but again, then Chelsea just swept up the other end and and, and made it made it safe. So that Chelsea are on for the double. Uh, sadly, they missed out on the Champions League. They lost uh, to Wolfsburg in the semi-finals. But yeah, Chelsea look yeah really solid and uh, a strong English core. In fact, for both teams, kind of, and then sort of decorated with uh, continental talent. And uh, uh, one player I picked out on the, in the Arsenal team is uh, Van Donk, who uh, who just went around kicking people, and that was that was just just lovely. There's an extra <laughs> nice. bit of seasoning that an FA Cup final needed. It was someone just going around kicking everyone. Uh, that's extraordinary. What was also extraordinary this weekend was uh, Arsenal uh, scoring five, absolutely thrashing Burnley. Um, it was Arsene Wenger's final home game. All sorts of tributes and guards of honour, uh, and a really nice positive atmosphere. A sign of things to come next season. Maybe. I mean, they they played well. Aubameyang looked in great form. I, I think they're. The issue, if you like, for the next manager, well, there's a few of them, but the issue going forward is is how to fit Aubameyang and Lacazette into the same side. Wenger's been keen to use Aubameyang from the left, which is where he's played previously, and he's quite good there. I'm not sure they will ever have the right partnership, personally. I think they're relatively similar, um, and I'm not sure they're quite good enough to justify playing two up front and compromise the rest of the, the, rest of the team. And I tend to think Arsenal have got themselves in a little bit of a state by 
releasing Giroud and getting Lacazette and Aubameyang. I think if you want any two of those three, the two you don't want are Lacazette and Aubameyang. You want different options. But they did play very well and it was um, a very comfortable win. And I think that was nice. And Burnley were hot on the heels of Arsenal. So it was nice that Arsenal just put them in place with uh, a 5-0 win. Daniel, a lot of jibes on social media towards the Arsenal fans for in uh, being accused of basically hounding Wenger out of his job and then saying, thank you. But these two things aren't completely linked, are they? Mm-hmm. It's, it's OK to be angry at the present, but kind of respectful of the past, right? Absolutely. And it's, it's also not... Arsenal fans is not one homogenous mass. People are allowed different opinions within a fan base. And for all the protests of Wenger, it's important to note that most, the vast majority of those, and particularly the angriest ones, took place outside the ground. And there were very few chants of Wenger out at home games. Um, And yeah, exactly right. You can both think that Wenger was not the man to take the club forward in the future, while also accepting and celebrating the fact that he was the man that means they're in this position in the first place and also changed English football and therefore want to celebrate that. It seems a nonsense to me that anyone would not understand that. Um, This idea of tribalism within modern supporters and this anger rising in them is, I think, justified. But when you have people telling who are non-Arsenal supporters telling Arsenal supporters A, how they should behave and B, that how they are behaving is not right you can see how fans get angry OK, well, it'll be interesting to see what Manchester United fans are saying and feeling and how angry they are on Friday they were beaten 1-0 by Brighton I have to say, I changed jobs in December and there's a lot of things I miss about being a football writer but watching Manchester United is not among them and uh, it was no better on Friday they, they really are quite drab for a team in second place, aren't they? It's not just that I've struggled to enjoy watching them. It's that I can never think of anything interesting to say about Manchester United. Mm. They're just, everything about them is fine. The goalkeeper's fantastic. Everything else is fine. Um, I'm amazed they finished in second place, really, because I don't think they've played particularly good football all year. I think even the defence, which, you know, looks good on paper. There's actually a few cracks in that. You know, the full-backs, they can upgrade. Uh, there's no great centre-back partnership. Um, obviously, the goalkeeper's fantastic once again. Um, but yeah, it was a poor performance, and it was good to see Brighton... Brighton winning because I think they've been one of the positives of this Premier League season. Hewton's done a really good job. They're, they're solid in the way they defend. They defend rather too deep and a little bit too passively. But then they've got some threat on the break. And, and Pascal Gross, it was nice that he got the winner because, as, as I think we probably said before, he's, aside from Salah, probably been the, the signing of the season, I think. Yeah, three million quid from Ingolstadt, where he created 95 chances last season as they went down from the Bundesliga. I'm pulling all this information from the top of my head. Mm. I'm just like a computer. I haven't been helped at all. There's something um, great about saying his chances created while saying the word Ingolstadt. Yes. Which <laughs> works nicely. Here's more stats. Seven goals, eight assists, and how crucial they've been. And and well done, Chris Hewton, as well. I'm, I, I was one of those who said that Brighton were going straight back down again. I'm very, very wrong. Daniel, how's he done it? Uh, he's Well, firstly, they did it through some pretty exceptional recruitment last year. If you look at the players that um, they were able to bring into the club, it, there are a lot of Premier League clubs, and some of them will finish above Brighton, whose recruitment last summer was dreadful. Uh, Chelsea and Everton are two of them. But Brighton got players who are fit for purpose, and they also got players well above their normal station. You know, Matt Ryan, David Proper... Um, obviously Pascal Gross um, Paul Wynn Stanley's the head of recruitment down there and he's done a, a fantastic job um, but the other thing they've done and it's the same that Newcastle and 
Huddersfield will have done as well is that they're not a crisis club. They've I've said it before on this show, but they've all three of the promoted clubs have got the best manager they could hope for. And they've kept faith in that manager. And while other clubs beneath them have taken their eye off the ball, they have all three been fully focused on staying in the Premier League. And, and this season, with a very flabby bottom half... It's <laughs> <laughs> a delightful I'm, image. Yeah, I'm not looking at you, Ian. Um, that's been enough to stay up. Um, let's <laughs> Can't shake that image now. Uh, let's go back to uh, Mourinho, uh, because he was really laying into his players afterwards. He said, I couldn't persuade my players that second place was very important to us. I know we can do it. We only have two matches to get the four points we need, but Brighton beat us in the attitude. For ten months, I get asked, why always Lukaku? Why always Lukaku? Why always Lukaku? Why always this player? That guy doesn't have a chance to start. The other one's on the bench. Well, you know why now. I mean, blimey. Uh, third season starts next season. Uh, how much of it is he going to get to finish? Uh, well, um, no, I think he'll still be there. I don't, I don't think it will necessarily follow the pattern of his established pattern of his career. Um, his Lukaku comment was interesting because it was the latest in one of his kind of very public, you see what I've got to work with here? <laughs> you see what I've been doing? And um, I, that act will probably wear a bit thin. But um, but the thing is with Man United, they have enough money. Uh, he's a good enough manager and they have a decent enough existing squad for them to challenge better next season. Um, to pick up on Michael's point about, uh, about them being flattered by second place. I think it's just because they've had a season where they haven't had too many ups and downs domestically. Uh, whereas Liverpool and Liverpool and well, actually just Liverpool have kind of sort of accelerated towards the finish line. And, and I guess recency bias kind of flatters them a little bit, but United has had a steady season and that's why they're so far behind City and probably just ahead of Liverpool and Spurs. And the funny thing about them, sorry to butt in, is, uh, as I'm sure you saw that the stat they've lost to all three newly promoted teams, mm. um, and so a lot of people like to do this kind of comparison of results between one season and the next. And when they compare it next season to this season, that's surely going to be nine extra points based upon those those teams coming up. I guess the thing about that is that United tend to kind of spread their crises out across a season. They don't <laughs> they don't have the kind of the Arsenal style February collapses, or, or you know. A, Conte went sort of three defeats on the spin. So, yeah, they kind of spread their drama out over the season. And Mourinho likes to kind of keep these things kind of just on pretty low key. Daniel, Manchester United loyalists will say there's 24 wins on the board. That that can be enough to win a title. They're five points clear of a Liverpool team and six points clear of a Tottenham team, uh, both of whom have managers who are praised to the skies. Um, are we being harsh on Mourinho? I don't think so, purely because it's okay to have different pre-season expectations about clubs. And our pre-season expectation about Manchester United was that we would get a title challenge. I think some of the criticism towards Mourinho is probably inbuilt disappointment that the top end of the Premier League has been such a stroll for City. Um, but this, this, this lambasting of players, particularly young players in public, is going to wear thin pretty quickly. Um, if Mourinho, you know, Manchester United fans were asked to choose between Martial and Rashford and their manager at the moment, Mourinho might not like the answer from a number of supporters. And his kind of, what can I, do, what else can I do? I, I gave them a chance and they didn't perform. It overlooks a number of things, but not least that he has hardly given those two players any starts in the last few months. He signed another player in their position, and a 29-year-old in their position in January, which has limited their starts. And he's played with a, a style of football this season which seems to stymie attacking players, particularly wide players. 
and made no secret of the fact that he wants more in the summer. So I don't think you can treat those players as they have been treated this season and then give them one game to perform and then suddenly throw your arms up and say, oh, where has this come from? Right, let's go through the rest of the games. Leicester beaten 2-0 at home by West Ham. West Ham will stay up. Leicester fans really not very happy with whispering Claude. Four defeats in five now. No goals in three. Four wins in the last 19. Um, he got sacked from Southampton towards the end of last season. Daniel Story, is he going to get sacked again? Yeah, I think he will do. Um, and... Leicester are in a very strange position now where they are forever destined to live the after the Lord Mayor's show season because they can obviously never hope to replicate 2015-16 and the Champions League run of the following season. Um, but given that kind of slight futility to everything that then follows, they might as well give it a go. And if you are a club who wants to give it a go and have some entertainment if you're not going to be successful, Claude Puel has proven himself not for the manager to be um, responsible for that. So, yeah, why not? I think they'll attract a very decent manager. Paul McIntosh, who I assure you is no relation <laughs> on Twitter, said uh, if Claude Puel had struggled initially and then ended the season on a roll, taking Leicester to 44 points, would he now be getting the same plaudits as Benitez and Hodgson and Hewton? You can make a similar argument for any manager of any club in this division, but unfortunately, that's just how seasons work. Um, uh, and uh, see, you know, that's told you, Paul. No, no it'll, it'll all come out in the wash at the end of the season. Uh, sorry, no offence to Paul, uh, your your brother, whoever My brother. Um, but. Uh, uh, Leicester's cachet is such that they probably could attract a better manager than Claude Boyle but then the flip side of this is that we're in a kind of culture at the moment where people don't want to repeat the mistakes that other clubs have been publicly shamed for so Southampton supposedly getting rid of Puel too early doesn't want to be Leicester's new mistake as well um, so but I, I'm not really sure we're getting to the point now where Leicester is going to kind of settle where it, wherever their natural position is and I really don't know what to expect from the next season well on a similar vein uh, final game of the weekend Watford beating Newcastle three straight defeats for Newcastle now uh, I did wonder if Javi Grazia would last long enough for people to stop spelling his name as Garcia. Um, it doesn't look like he's going to make it because the word is, despite this, he's going to get sacked. I assume, yeah, I mean, it seems like Watford will just do this every summer, even though he only came in relatively recently. And again, he's done a decent job, but I think if you've got any ambition, maybe you can look elsewhere and get someone in who, who might take you uh, better places because they've actually got quite a good squad Watford, uh, I think they've got some really good players going forward, midfield. I think Decore's maybe been the the bottom half player of the year, quite possibly, if, if that's an award. Well, it's not an award. I've just created it, but <laughs> he'd be up there for me. Um, yeah, I t- the only thing I enjoyed about this game really was uh, Troy Deeney missing the rebound of his penalty. Not because I dislike Troy Deeney, as most people seem to. I think he's quite an actually interesting bloke. I just really dislike it when penalty takers score the rebound of their penalties. It seems completely unfair to me that you have a second go. <laughs> it should be like if you hit the post, you should have to wait for someone else to touch it. That's all for the Premier League. Next up, Europe. Listeners, starting up the Totally Football show was a hairy business. Fortunately, Cornerstone have been with us every step of the way. Why? Because they're in the business of making hairy things smooth, like your face. Cornerstone's award-winning blades will give you the smoothest shave possible. And their range of balms, creams and exfoliators are all environmentally friendly, alcohol-free and suitable for the most sensitive skin. Head to cornerstone.co.uk slash totally to see the range for yourself, get £10 off your first order and have it delivered right to your door. And you'll find out why tens of thousands of men have switched over to Cornerstone. Scotland. 
because you count as European to me, not least because you voted to remain that way in overwhelming numbers. Now, as you'll all know by now, Stephen Gerrard has been appointed the new manager of Rangers. Um, I watched their 5-0 defeat to Brendan Rodgers' Celtic last weekend. I have to say, I think the scoreline flattered them. Um, they were obliterated. It could have been 10. Unless they won the lottery this weekend, they can't match Celtic for spending. They're in a division that's so much tougher than people think. It's not a two-horse race. Aberdeen are so decent that lifelong Rangers fan Derek McInnes wouldn't swap Pataudry for Ibrox. Hibs are on the rise of Neil Lennon. Kilmarnock are renewed under Steve Clark. And into this melee, Rangers throw a rookie. But what do I know? I'm not an expert. Stephen Mill is, though. He's the host of the SPFL Soccer FM podcast, and he's on the line right now. How are you doing, guys? All right? Very well, thank you. Very well. Um, what's the reaction? We know that Rangers fans will see this as the greatest masterstroke and appointment. Um, Celtic fans will probably still be laughing. But what's the reaction from the neutral to this? Well, I mean, as a neutral myself, it's kind of bewildering, I must admit. I'm going to start with the pros um, because uh, I'll get abuse from Rangers fans if I don't start with the pros. Obviously, as you've just mentioned there, I mean, Stephen Gerrard's a huge global name. He's got vast playing experience. Uh, you know, another thing that I haven't seen mentioned so far, the SBFL is in the uh, midst of renegotiating a TV deal with either BT or Sky. I don't know if that might have any factor on it, but I think Sky might fancy uh, chucking a few more uh, millions into the deal if it means getting a hold of Stephen Gerrard for a couple of years. Uh, so, so those are the pros, I guess. But in terms of the cons, as you as you just mentioned in the intro there, he's a total rookie. He's got no managerial experience. Um, I don't think he quite knows what he's let himself in for either. I mean, I don't know if you if you managed to catch what Gordon Strachan was saying. I think it was last week. Uh, he took over at Celtic and, and two weeks into the job, he thought to himself, what the hell am I doing here? This is, this is hellish. Because um, the pressure and the intensity is just incredible. And as you've just mentioned there, Ian, as well, um, it's not just a two-horse race. I mean, Rangers will be lucky to finish in the top four this season. It's... Um, it's Hibs and Aberdeen, and those are their two final games of the season, and they're both away from home, one at Pataudry, one at Easter Road. So it's by no means certain that Stephen Gerrard will be walking into a situation where Rangers are the second-best team in the country. Let's talk about the issues off the field, because I know everyone will know what a big club Rangers are. It's an absolutely huge club. But off the field, uh, since they hauled themselves back into the top flight, it's not been smooth sailing, has it? Absolutely not. They finished third last season uh, under a combination of uh, Mark Warburton and then the, the ill-fated Pedro Cachinha. Um But as, as you mentioned, the gap between particularly Celtic and the rest of the teams is quite staggering. Here's a couple of stats for you. You know, Rangers have lost 10 times this season. To put that into perspective, Hibs, who have just been promoted from the Championship, this is their first season back in the top flight, uh, under Neil Lennon, they've only lost six times this season. So uh, they're 14 points behind Celtic. And from a financial standpoint, one thing that I've not heard that any Rangers fan or I think maybe a handful of commentators up here have mentioned is where's the money coming from? There's been no sort of questioning over that. Dave King, who's the chairman now at Rangers and has been for the last two or three years, has promised numerous war chests to various different managers and so far none of them have materialised so um, this is a really win or bust I think for Dave King in terms of the fans because he needs to produce the goods and produce the money and just another point on the financial aspect the six months to the to the end of last year Rangers revenue was under £20 million it was 19 point something whereas Celtic for the same period their revenue was £71 million so that's that's the difference between the two teams at the moment 
He signed a four-year deal, but the last manager at Rangers to get more than 100 games was Ali McCoist, and that was in the lower leagues. Um, what are the odds of him getting even halfway through this contract? <laughs> well, I mean, who knows? Who knows? I think that it, it could turn out to be a, a, a masterstroke. Everyone's pointing towards Graham Souness back in the 1980s when he came and sort of revolutionised Scottish football under David Murray's money. Uh, you know, but his first two signings were Chris Wood, uh, or Chris Wood's the, the England number one, and Terry Butcher, the England captain. Now, I don't think Stephen Gerrard's going to have uh, that level of uh, that level of bank balance to go out and buy whoever. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's I think it's highly unlikely he's going to make it to the, the end of the end of the four years. I, I really don't think he, he knows what he's let himself in for. I watched his his press conference on Friday. He did an extended interview on on BT Sport uh, with Daryl Curry up here um, on Saturday morning, and I, I still don't think he quite grasps the the enormity of the job in hand and just all the things that I've just listed off there. This is an absolutely huge job, and it's it's not one where Rangers fans will accept you know the odd defeat here and there. Rangers need to be winning every week. That's just the reality of Celtic and Rangers. Liam Brady came up early nineties to to Celtic, and I think Celtic. I think it was Airdrie that they, they they got beaten off. This was only you know three or four months into his reign, and after it he was like, "Well, what's all the fuss about? I mean, we've lost one match. It's to Airdrie. It doesn't really matter." And at that point, I think most Celtic fans went, "Yeah, the, the, this job isn't for you, mate." So he needs to hit the ground running. And, uh, you know, it might turn out well, but without serious, serious money to spend, I just can't see him getting close to, to Celtic. And that's what the Rangers fans want. They, they want to stop 10 in a row and they've only got another three years to do it now. Let's look at uh, positives. So he's been in charge of Liverpool under 18. So I mean, hard to get a gauge on that, but it, it seems to be well reported. Gary McAllister's coming in as his assistant. I mean, his record as a number one isn't great, but, you know, he, he knows the game very well. It'd be a good counterbalance. And there is the argument that someone like Gerard, and he's gone with the blessing of Jurgen Klopp, he might have access to uh, to a certain grade of players that perhaps Rangers wouldn't have. Is, is there any, any feeling in that? Yeah, well, undoubtedly, I think that Stephen Gerrard, just his name alone, uh, might bring in players that Rangers wouldn't get close to. I know that Martin Scurfle has already been linked. Uh, there's been a lot of chat over the likes of, you know, Peter Crouch. I mean, he's uh, been relegated now with Stoke. He might be on the lookout for a new team. Charlie Adam played with Rangers previously as well. Uh, played with Stephen Gerrard at Liverpool. So all these names have been linked. Whether there's any uh, truth in them, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. We'll just need to wait and see. But I think, yeah, undoubtedly, someone like Stephen Gerrard, uh, regardless of his lack of managerial experience as a you know a top flight manager, um, he'll undoubtedly uh, be able to attract players that they they couldn't have done under Graham Murray, for example. I tell you what, though, um, whether it works or not it's got to be good for Scottish football hasn't it um, if I perchance wanted to listen to a podcast about Scottish football are there any you could recommend preferably hosted by people who are neither Celtic nor Rangers fans uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that. Yeah, Soccer FM uh, will be recording later on today, actually. So if you fancy listening out for that podcast, it's all things Scottish football and not just Celtic and Rangers because uh, myself and Ray, my co-host, uh, I'm a Dunfermline fan and he's a Partick Thistle fan. So he's in the he's in the depths of relegation at the moment. So uh, it's always a funny listen to, to hear him cry over the weekend results. So that's enjoyable. Well, good luck to the pair of you and consider me subscribed. Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Cheers. Thanks very much. Right, the rest of Europe. Uh, we usually start with Italy, but uh, yeah, it's bank holiday. Let's go to Spain. Coxie, was there a game on last night? Yeah, there was El Clasico. Oh, I've um, heard of it. 
Yeah, which was less of a big game than usual, of course, because Barcelona have already wrapped up La Liga. There was minor controversy by the fact that uh, Real didn't give them a guard of honour, which I think is quite poor form, because I remember Barcelona doing it for them, certainly back in 2008, I remember. Um, But then Barcelona kind of took the mickey by their staff, giving them a guard of honour at the end of the game. So you can expect Real Madrid to respond with something if they win the Champions League, I'm sure. Um, But it was quite a good game. I mean, it was... It was good, I think, because there wasn't the usual tension and, and the usual fear of making mistakes that comes with a real high-stakes game. And it was just quite open and both t- both sides attacked. And the first three goals, it must be said, were absolutely wonderful. Really good team moves. Daniel, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo off at half-time with what looked like an ankle injury. Um, he's suddenly a doubt for the final, isn't he? He's had a funny Classico season this season, Ronaldo, because he got brought on, scored, and then was sent off within 20 minutes in the reverse fixture. Um, I really... Look, La Liga is a is a league with a multitude of problems, not least inequality. But any game where Lionel Messi, Luis Suarez, Gareth Bale, and Cristiano Ronaldo scores, you can tell why there is such a glamour around the fixture. And actually, the thing I liked about it is that although there was nothing really riding on the game, it was really spicy. Sergio Roberto was sent off. I think there was like eight or nine yellow cards. Yeah, there was a real. Um, a real sense from Real Madrid, or even though they hadn't won the league, they were not going to be embarrassed in the in Camp Nou. Uh, good news for Bale, though, um, who for for whom is constantly surrounded by rumours of his future. Will this sort of get him back in favour? His goal was beautiful. A first time finish, it's right in the corner. Um, notable for me for the Sky commentator who uh, who said Ter Stegen. There was no point in Ter Stegen even diving for that, which was um, which was a bit dismissive. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's um, I think I've never really been sure. I don't, I don't really know anything about Gareth Bale simply because he's been his career has been so interrupted by these all these injuries. So I don't really know where he goes next. Um, so maybe yeah, the Champions League final is where he goes next, obviously. And uh, but after that, I, I don't really know who takes a stab at Gareth Bale. Man United are always mooted as his next destination, but I don't think I don't think they would take the plunge now. He's still struggling to get into the side for the Champions League final. I think if Ronaldo's out, which I don't think he will be, then that plays into Bale's hands. But I still think he's probably second back up at best really in that attacking section um, there, there is another European final of course Atletico Madrid against Marseille in the Europa League final um, 32 clean sheets for Atletico Madrid in all competitions this season and they say the art of defending is dead yeah well it certainly was in the Champions League but Atletico's performance on the Thursday was a bit of a throwback really I mean Arsenal had so much possession and, and worked the ball into the fullback positions to to cross so many times, but Atletico didn't really look that worried, to be honest. I think Arsenal's only shot on target was Xhaka from 30 yards. So, you know, Diego Godin, I think, has been the best penalty box centre-back, if I can use that expression, for the past five years now, and is just imperious at defending in I, that way. I love Godin because, he, I mean, you know, English fans will watch that and they think, you know, we, you need to be a towering six-foot-four man mountain to be a good defender. And he throw, he throws that completely upside down. And he's always almost like a Carvalho-esque presence. It, it, he demonstrates that there are much more subtle ways to defend than simply throwing your way in, in front of something. You have to be a lot cannier than that. And he, I, I really like defenders like that. All right. Well, staying on the Iberian Peninsula, Portugal have new champions. Uh, and it's Porto, first time since 2013 after Benfica had won the last 
four. Uh, so well done to them. Uh, in Italy, Juve were a goal behind against Bologna and it looked like the title race might be getting very interesting. Alas, no, they came back 1-3-1 and they're just one win away from the title uh, because Napoli drew two all with Torino. In Germany, Jaden Sancho got his fourth assist for Dortmund and uh, Adamola Luckman, who uh, was, was considered you know, quite mad to leave Everton for uh, for Leipzig. Um, he scored twice for them as they beat Wolfsburg 4-1. So I think he, on balance, probably the young man's made the right decision there. And in France, uh, not much going on in League One, obviously, but uh, Les Herbiers, and I think you'll appreciate my pronunciation there, they are 13th in the French third division, warming up for the Coupe de France final with PSG, and they beat Laval 3-2. Nice. Good luck to them. That is the football. Now, it's time to get the odds from Paddy Power with producer Ben. Thank you, Ian. I'm with Lee Price from Paddy Power. Lee, how are you doing? I'm very good, Ben. A little bit sunburned, but all right. Let's talk about the bottom of the Premier League. Uh, Swansea are taking on Southampton on Tuesday. Only one of them can stay up. Can I get the odds, please, on the overall for this? Yeah, this is the six-pointers and all six-pointers and potentially one of the teams involved in the in the Premier League. Mark Hughes is going for the double in terms of clubs relegated, but we make here Southampton side the narrow favourites. They're 13 to 10 to win. Swansea are 9 to 4 at home, which is pretty massive for a home team. The draw is 21 to 10. And uh, perhaps if I'm feeling uh, a little bit ambitious with this, what about, say, the odds on uh, two goals and a red card? Oof, your ambition knows no bounds. Um, your very specific bet is 8 to 1, which means it isn't ridiculous. Well, <laughs> that's, that's good to hear. All right. Um, <laughs> How about another ridiculous idea that I've got? Stoke are going to come straight back up. Hmm. Yeah, the relegation was only confirmed on Saturday, but it was a long time coming. We actually paid out the very moment they hired Paul Lambert. Harsh, but ultimately accurate. Uh, We think, though, that they're well-backed, they have some saleable assets, and they will be amongst the favourites for promotion. We go 7-2, to they bounce straight back, which will put them very high up the list of favourites. And how does that compare to uh, Claude Puel still being at Leicester uh, at the end of the summer? Yeah, I doubt he'll make the end of the week, let alone the end of the summer. Poor old whispering Claude. Two Premier League jobs, two decent-ish seasons, two harsh seconds, it seems. We're now odds on that he goes, uh, and that's creeping down and down and down. Marco Silva is the favourite to succeed him. There's been a big surge this weekend on David Wagner from Huddersfield. Lee, that's all a bit depressing. Let's talk about something far more optimistic. We've just been uh, hearing from Scotland about uh, Stevie G taking over at Rangers. How inevitable is it that they're going to win the SPL? (laughs) <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say inevitable interesting choice of words um, my social media has actually been full of gags about him stopping Brendan Rodgers winning the title again and I'm sure he will slip into the natural order of things up there it's been billed as a poison chalice but he kind of right it's very simple if he wins the league he has legendary status immediately on Ibrox we go 8-1 to that he wins the SPL crown in his first season there unlikely I think you can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com. 18 plus only, begambleaware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. Thank you ever so much, gentlemen, for coming in on this glorious bank holiday. I release you now to the beer gardens of England. Michael Cox, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Daniel Story, safe journey back up north. Thank you very much. Adam Hurry, enjoy the park. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thanks to producer Ben and thanks to you, dear listener. Remember, if you're upset that there wasn't nearly enough Football League today, Football League show tomorrow. Find it where you find all your podcasts. And don't worry, James will be back on Thursday. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. 
Listeners, before you leave us, a quick public service announcement. Our friends at Gimlet Media have released a new podcast called We Came to Win. It's a documentary series about the hidden stories behind the World Cup's most iconic moments, and the first episode tells the tale of England's epic run at Italia 90. It features a couple of voices you'll know very well, like Ian McIntosh and Matt Scott, and amazing football writers like Pete Davis. Here they are describing the bad old days of the pre-Premier League football stadia. And if people needed to urinate, they'd go up to the back of the terraces, urinate against the back wall. So by about midway through the first half, you'd literally be standing in torrents of piss. Uh, it was uh, vile. <laughs> it was awful. So never wear, never wear your best shoes to football back in the 80s because it wouldn't be good. You can find We Came to Win wherever you get your podcasts.